Hi, everybody. It's Jonah Pallone, and welcome to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. If you're interested in learning about the stories of American small business owners and why small business is great for our country, this is the podcast for you. In my role at Midstreet, helping people sell their companies throughout the Southeast, I've been fortunate enough to get a behind-the-scenes look at the lives and organizations of hundreds of business owners. I created Owner Operated to let you in behind the curtain. Follow me on this journey and subscribe to my newsletter at jonahpalone.com. In this episode, I spoke with Nick Earls and Eric DiNicola, co-founders and managing principals of Winter Spring Capital and PWN Development based in the greater Boston area. Winter Spring Capital is a real estate syndication firm with a portfolio of 56 million in primarily multifamily assets under ownership throughout the Southeast and Boston. Along with their assets under ownership, Nick and Eric have $40 million in projected revenue with PWN development. One of my favorite things about their strategy is how their long-term real estate holdings act as a hedge against the riskier development side of the business. Enjoy the episode and let me know what you think. All right, Nick and Eric, thanks so much for joining me on the Owner-Operated Podcast. I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having us on. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So why don't we just start off with your story? Let's talk about, maybe Nick, you want to start us off, how you got into real estate, what your career has been so far, and how that has led up to this point. And then Eric, you can take it from there. Yeah. So I'm actually third generation in the construction industry. Um, my grandfather was a developer in Western Ireland, and my parents owned a, gen- a small business, general contracting company growing up. So I kind of always had a uh, construction bent, entrepreneurial bent to me, uh, figured I'd, I'd end up doing something like that, like my parents and grandparents had done. Um, but I, I didn't have skill with my hands or building. You know, my dad was a carpenter. My grandfather was a carpenter. So it was just kind of a logical fit for them. So I just kind of always figured probably not going to be real estate, probably not going to be construction. But as I got older, I realized real estate isn't just construction. There's also a financial and investing side to it and even a sales side. So out of college, I got my real estate license and I kind of learned it from the sales perspective. I was selling apartment buildings for a few years in Massachusetts and Connecticut. And Eric and I, um, we've been friends since we were in high school. Actually, we've known each other almost 20 years now. Wow. And, uh, Similar to me, um, he doesn't have like the entrepreneurial family background, but just kind of, man, are we going to, you know, work for someone else for the rest of our lives? Like that, it just didn't seem that appealing. Um, I don't know if it's an ego thing or what, but just, we thought similarly like that. And, uh, we just kind of always had this rough, loose idea, like maybe we'll do a business together someday. And, um, then I started doing the real estate sales. And I, you know, I contacted him and he can tell you his story, but I contacted him. We'd kind of gone our separate ways after college. And I said, we got to, Hey man, this real estate investing, this is, this is it. This is the company, you know, um, we got to save up some money. So we had this plan to save up a hundred thousand dollars and then that would seed our first investment. And we were saving for probably four or five years, at least, wow. at least four. And, uh, in 2015, we saw a good opportunity and we pounced on it and I could, uh, we can touch more on the specifics of that later, but that's kind of the background. Awesome. Eric, you want to go next? Yeah, sure. As, uh, as Nick said, you know, we've known each other 
for a long time now and we plan to do something. We didn't know what, um, we played sports together in high school. We played video games together. So, um, we knew we kind of do something together or at least hoped. And, and some of our other friends too, from back then are involved with our company now as well. Um, so I just, you know, I just come from a, a blue collar background, um, my grandfather was a carpenter, so kind of had that in there. And then my dad was in sales. So um, those kind of run in my blood a little, not like Nick, but when he mentioned, you know, when he got me into it, it was like, all right, all right, there's a little, little background here. And so we, uh, I was working, I went, I went to college in New Jersey. Then I was working in New York City, um, trading stocks. And then I worked at a firm, dealt with private equity. Um, so I, I, you know, I got a finance degree and that was kind of what I was doing. But as Nick said, we knew we wanted to run a business in some capacity. Um, you know, we, we like money, but a lot from the standpoint of, you know, financial freedom, not that we can just say, ah, we're rich. We can pile up, a, you know, a pile of gold and sit on it. So yeah. our families just don't have to worry about anything, which I'm sure a lot of people feel that way, but some don't. So we, that's really our perspective. So anyway, I sat down first day of my job, um, right out of school. And like I said, I was training stocks, which is pretty fun. It wasn't bad, but I remember the first like half hour I, I sat there. I said, I don't think this is uh, I can't do this till I'm 65. This is not good. And I was only 22. So I, this is not a good pathway. So when he contacted me, uh, to come back and, and, and work with him on this investment, it was sort of a no brainer. Um, and so, yeah, we, we made our first investment, uh, at that point. And, you know, we, kind of went from there. Did you guys have any idea what it would become in, you know, how it is today back then doing your first investment? Did you have plans for like, I want to build this thing out? You know, I really want this to be the thing, or was it like, let's just try this and see how it goes. If it fails, we can always go back to our day jobs. I think we were always pretty ambitious. Um, we were just a little immature at first, you know, I mean, I'm probably more mature than a lot of other like 25 year olds, but we were, we didn't know the level of ambition we had. We didn't know really what it would take to get there. And we're yeah. still on that journey. You know, we're, we want to be, you know, we want to be big. Like Eric said, we want to make a lot of money, not for the sake of it. Like I never grew up like caring about money. Like our culture almost like tell, like tries to convince you not to care about money at this point, especially now. Yeah. But so I never really cared about it. Um, but then, you know, eventually you, you kind of grow up and you're like, well, money is just how you survive in the modern world. And uh, it just makes sense to make a lot of money. And I just kind of have this commitment, like I want to get big and I want to give back and, you know, I want to enrich the world and have like a, and again, I don't know if this is an ego thing, but I just feel like there's a reason why we're here in this world. And, you know, we want to be very successful so we can give back. And so we can kind of, like I said, enrich the world, you know, make, make a difference why we were here and money is just kind of a pathway to do that. Um, yeah. we, we started a nonprofit actually, um, the lucky puppy society, which funds surgeries for dogs. You know, if dogs need like a life saving, saving surgery, or they're going to be put down, lots of families can't afford that. So it's a new company. We just launched it. Um, but that that's kind of the mission we want to save hundreds, thousands of dogs. And our real estate business is kind of a, just a pathway to get that done, secure our family's future, you know? So it's, it's a, like a vehicle. 
Exactly. So yeah. we, we have big plans. We, we always kind of were ambitious and that was kind of the mindset behind it. That's awesome, man. That's, that's really awesome. So let's talk about your guys' partnership. So, and, and then I'd like to dig into what property you guys first invested in together. That, that fascinates me because I'm kind of starting to get to that point myself, right? Um, just together, you guys. So, so Nick, you were working on this deal. You said, Hey, you know, come in on this with me. What was that like, Eric, for you to, to kind of leave your job? And then how have you guys managed that partnership throughout the years? Yeah, that's actually exactly what it was. Um, you know, he had to kind of present it to me. I had come back one time. I remember we were, you know, hanging out. I, I came back up for like a weekend or something, you know, cause I was, I was down there for four years and then I was for college and I was working for four or five years down there. So I, I'd come back occasionally and we, you know, we constantly talked and everything, but there was definitely a period where I was sort of out of touch for a little bit. So he presented this to me and I thought like, well, this is the avenue, you know, this is what we have talked about for a long time, but it was, yeah, it was a big change. Definitely. It wasn't an easy decision, but it, it kind of was at the same time, um, even mm-hmm. though it was a complete like up, uprooting. But since we're both from Massachusetts, we grew up together. It was that made it easier for me, family back here and everything. But really the opportunity was just, it was too good. He had done all this research, had the numbers, gave me the projections. We went over it, said, okay, is how much money you need to bring that, that type of thing. And then, you know, in the end, the projections were even lower than what we ended up working, whatever we worked out to, which yeah. was great. Um, <clears throat> but we, uh, that first project was, you know, it was a two family that was turned into a three family. Uh, so in addition, whereas, you know, sometimes someone might, you know, start flipping with like a, a single family, which it's, and then, you know, sell that we, we kind of went to multifamily right away. Um, and that's not to say that you can't make it more from single families of that size or anything. It's just, we went to that and we sort of stuck with that. We've done some renovations, but mostly now, you know, new construction ground up multifamily. So do you remember any of the numbers on that first property? Like how much of a down, so you said a hundred thousand dollar down payment. Is that right? Uh, less than that. So we bought the property for, I believe 245,000. And then we, we need the, you need soft costs for development. So we needed to be able to pay for permitting fees, insurance, architectural plans, our engineers, all that we kind of had to pay out of pocket. So I believe we got 7525 LTV. So we put a 25% down payment on the 245. And then the 100 was almost not quite enough. I I had to put a little bit more in to cover Mm -hmm. the soft costs. Um, And then we got the construction financed by a local bank. Um, good project. Um, the gross sellout, it was three units. We were thinking we we're going to sell them for around in the high 300,000s. We ended up selling each unit in the low 400,000. So as Eric said, we exceed our projections probably by, you know, a hundred grand on the net profit, which was pretty good. Um, and that we just kept kind of rolling that back into next projects. But as Eric said, from the start, we kind of, um, we're trying to look how to generate the most value, which is, would be my advice if people are trying to get into this 
sort of business where you're doing construction, which might not be right for everyone doing development rather. Um, some people might be better off just buying a rental and, and just kind of parlaying it from there, keep buying more and more rentals. Some people, if they have a high enough income, they qualify as a credit investor. They should just invest passively into syndications or buy into REITs, um, which we could talk about a little bit later. So it really depends on your situation. But for us, like I had a slight construction background and you can generate more value if you analyze a property's zoning code um, requirements. So this property, even though it was an existing two family, one of the things that got me excited about it was I looked at it before purchasing it, I analyzed the zoning and I knew you could add another unit right there. That makes a project um, because you can make a lot of profit when you're adding units. Now at the time, this neighborhood of Boston was also kind of overlooked um, and it's exploded since then um, in the six years since we did that project. So I was, since I was selling, I kind of had an idea that that neighborhood was up and coming. There were a lot of development projects, larger ones that had already been improved by really large developers. And that can kind of give you a hint like, okay, the, you know, the big boys see something here. That's probably a good, a, a good place to be. Mm-hmm. And at the time it hadn't materialized price-wise, which is just kind of a semi gamble, but um, it paid off that, that neighborhood East Boston, um, we sold that first project for $400 a square foot, um, roughly around there. Today, they're trading in the high 600s, low 700s a square foot six years later. That's pretty cool. Yeah, those wow. same units. What do you think now? Those units would sell for like 650 a piece, 650 grand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. probably around 600. Yeah, you couldn't ever buy a two family for two, 245 now, wouldn't you? I mean, it would have to be literally just the four walls. Yeah. <laughs> your best bet and it'd be 800 square feet. Wow. So those are two ways you can generate additional value. You do your homework, right? Like you mm-hmm. look at, Hey, there's a bunch of nothing's happened yet, but there's a bunch of planned developments by these very large developers planning to invest a lot of money here. Something's going on, even if the market hasn't reflected it yet. And then looking at the zoning code, I mean, you could, someone could see that dilapidated two family and think, oh, I'll just flip it. But if you look at the zoning code, you might realize, oh, I can make even more money. Mm-hmm. So really do your research ahead of time. If you're going to be actively, you know, in the real estate game, doing flips or developments, um, leave no stone unturned. That's that's what I would say. That's and good really, advice. I remember Nick pointing this out, and that was almost my first foray into zoning. Uh, not almost, it was. And he explained to me. You know, the zoning code, what this means, the setbacks, the requirements, the floor area ratio. Some some places use like lot coverage percentage. Boston uses what's called FAR, floor area ratio, how basically sort of like the volume of the building that you can build on based on the lot size. Yeah, um, and it's, it's almost pretty rare now that you could even find something that you could expand and add another unit by right as it is. We go through the zoning appeals process a lot. Um, so that he found this. And then I remember a situation with it where you had to fight the plans examiner because he said, no, this doesn't work. And so I could have blown up the project, but Nick knew, okay, look, no, 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 this based on the code from your own city, 
this works. And the guy was actually pretty reasonable. We've, we've had the opposite scenario mm-hmm. with other plans examiners, but he eventually sort of admitted, oh yeah, okay, you're right. You're right. But I remember Nick had to fight him for, for a while and prove, okay, had the architect involved and prove that this was uh, actually an as of right build. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. The politics of that, I better not fun. My colleague, Eric, he does some land sales and that game is totally zoning based. Like whenever a zoning law changes, boom, like he's going after, you know, something. Right. So it's just funny how that works. It's a lot of politics in that game. Um, So let's go back to the story. Right. So you guys buy this, this first property, turn it into a three family, three different houses. Right. What, what was next? What was the next thing that you, you guys did? What was the, did you continue in that same area as a regional focus? Yeah, um, we did it. We've pretty much built in a lot of different neighborhoods in Boston and surrounding um, towns and cities. So at first, we just kind of rolled our capital into other projects. Um, Over time, we started getting investors involved um, because, you know, most developers will have investors involved, um, even the largest developers. It'll mostly be investor money. That's just kind of how it works for the equity portion, the down payment, as you Mm -hmm. might think of, you'll still get a debt portion from a lender, but then you'll have investors on the equity side. Um, Going into this, we were ignorant about that. Um, Like I said, I come from a construction background. So even though, you know, my, my parents were involved in the real estate industry, they don't really know the financial side of it. So this was all new to me. We thought, oh, you just got to keep rolling your own money in over and over and over again, and it'll take 40 years. But really the way to scale up is to build a brand and and say, hey, these are the projects I've done. This is, you know, the, how long it took us, this is the returns we got, build a track record and just kind of, eventually people will be interested and they'll say, hey, is there a way to invest? And there's a lot of different ways investing can work. Um, basically, if you form what's called a real estate syndication, you can advertise publicly to people um, like you could run ads. I don't think they're that effective, like running an ad online or something. It's better to have a real organic network, but you can advertise it. But the only people who can get involved with those sort of investments are accredited investors. Um, if it's advertised, if it's not advertised, you can bring in sophisticated investors. So the difference is an accredited investor. If you're single, you have to have an annual income of 200,000 a year or more if you're married 300,000 a year or a net worth of $1 million, not including your primary residence. That's just kind of to protect, you know, if you had someone running a mass advertising campaign, they don't want people who, they don't want people to invest money that they could afford to lose. That's kind of the government's rationale behind this regulation. So if you're shouting from the rooftops, Hey, come invest with me. They only want you to take in people who are able to sensibly take a risk like that. Mm. Um, if you're doing what's called a 506 B you're not allowed to advertise, but you can bring in people who don't meet that criteria, but have a previous prior relationship with you. Um, not related directly to an investment that you've just, you know, you've met organically over time, usually they can come in, but they still have to qualify as a sophisticated investor. They have to have some financial knowledge and understand the risks. So 
building out a network of people like that, depending on if you're going to advertise or not, um, is, is really kind of the logical progression we've taken. We've put a lot of effort into that over the past year. Um, we started bringing in investors in 2018 and it's, you know, it's been a really good, it's been a good direction. Um, putting in your own money is just kind of an unrealistic if you're intending to grow, you know, over time. Well, cause I know a lot of guys that I went to school and, you know, real estate investing was a hot topic. And one of the common debates was, you know, okay, I, I would rather grow faster, grow bigger, you know, have that syndication going where I can take investor money or I, I think you said 506 B right. Um, I've also heard like joint venture. We can get into that a little bit more if you'd like, but so that's kind of like one option was where you have equity investors as well. And then you have the other option, which is I'm completely independent of all of that. I'm going to grow slower, but I own everything. What would, did you guys ever, I mean, obviously you did consider it, right? But what were the considerations with not going that way? You just, you wanted to get bigger, faster and make a bigger impact quicker. Yeah. I, I, I think we saw, you know, sort of peers of ours in the industry um, doing projects of similar size in the same space that we thought, you know, again, maybe it's an ego thing. Like we, we've mentioned a few times, but it's like, we thought we were probably, I don't know. I don't know how to say it, but it, we, we, we could get to a higher point than these guys just kind of talking with them. Our knowledge seemed better. They started around the same time as us. Um, and then we, we sort of saw a few of them kind of explode and all of a sudden, you know, doing 20, 40, 50 unit deals. And wow. the difference was, sort of this marketing and bringing in outside uh, groups and outside capital. And we said, all right, look, maybe we're sort of averse to this. It's not something we thought we would do, but, you know, a piece, a a small piece of a much bigger pie to us was better than, you know, uh, the entire thing of of a small pie, if you will. This show is brought to you by Midstreet Mergers and Acquisitions, a business intermediary based out of Raleigh, North Carolina that specializes in selling businesses generating $1 to $25 million in revenue throughout the Southeast. If you own a business and are considering an exit, check out their website and contact them at midstreet.com. That's M-I-D-street.com. Now back to the show. Okay, so let's talk about how the company is set up. So you've got winter spring capital and you've got PWN development, right? So this concept of kind of this short-term versus long-term like hedging is, is kind of how I, I'm looking at it. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically with, with PWN, you build and you sell um, residences essentially. And then using that money, you also buy, buy and hold properties with winter spring. Is that how that works? Walk me through like how you guys have set those companies up. Yeah. So PWN was the first company where we did our developments from, and then we were just kind of buying our own rental portfolio here um, over the past few years, just, uh, you know, owning properties under individual LLCs. And we started to realize, you know, as Eric said, the numbers make more sense to get investors involved and just scale up. It's a faster growth path. We'll make more money and our investors will make money. It's kind of an everyone wins situation. Um, So we created the winter spring brand, which we use to acquire larger properties than we were, you know, we were buying with our own money up here. Now we're buying larger properties with our investors involved, but we still also, um, winter spring investors can still also get involved in our development projects as well. So you can invest in either one development projects, a little bit riskier, um, 
but mostly involving the timelines. Whereas you'll get a higher return with a development project, or if you like kind of a longer term thing, a little less risk, maybe a little bit lower return, just the multifamily acquisitions, usually a value add model on those where we go in, we raise the rents um, after performing some renovations. We look basically for properties that are mismanaged um, to some degree or another, um, and that still have some room for growth if you reposition them. So that's kind of the two rungs of our model. We're also getting into affordable housing development as well, um, which we're doing a project here in Boston, some for sale at an affordable price, um, city funded. So hopefully we'll have some of those projects people can invest in, in the future as well. That's awesome. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you guys on the show was because Nick, with your small business background, with your family, but also you guys are, it, it's more blue collar than a lot of these companies that are, you know, pretty large and sort of disconnected, right? You guys understand how to get, get your hands dirty. You started out just you guys doing this one development, right? And then you grew the company over time. What were some of the first hires you made and where are you guys today with that? How are you guys set up? So with, with the way we are as developers, a lot of the people, so it's interesting the question actually, because we kind of hired people quote unquote from the beginning, because we were working with contractors and subcontractors that we had to manage. Mm. But unlike someone who you hire, you're not, at, you're not in as much of a position of power with a subcontractor as you are with someone who works directly under you. Um, you could fire them from the job, of course, but they, you know, it's their own company. So from the beginning, we kind of had to learn how to manage people and work together and get people to communicate with each other, even without that, like, Hey, I'm your boss, you know, like that sort of like energy, like everyone's afraid and like intimidated. We kind of had to do that from more of a communal, like, Hey, we're all equals. You have your own company. We have ours. We're all working together on this project. Um, which we, we've taken that energy now into the way we work with people who do work directly under us. Um, we've got a couple employees now that work directly under us as well. So the first one we directly hired was in 2018, um, around the time we started bringing in investors. And that's been great. He was actually a longtime friend of ours as well, who similarly was just kind of in a, a nine, normal nine to five job kind of turned into a zombie as the years went on. Um, so he's, <laughs> he's been grateful to join the team. And uh, we, we hired another friend of ours more on like a, um, he works kind of like as a freelance and in, involved with like building our websites. Cause he, he has his own entrepreneurial background. So it's more a partnership with him. And then we've, we've hired a graphics guy. He's great. Um, like a part-time position whenever we need graphics made for, you know, investor presentations or anything like that. He's really good. And then we have a, a, a woman on social media. She's very good as well. Um, another part-time position, but she just kind of runs the pages and we work kind of collaboratively like ideas about what should be posted or th things like that. Um, but outsourcing is a big thing. These sort of things were not, a, I don't know how to make graphics. Um, I have, 30 friends on Facebook. Like, I don't know these things. So like <laughs> we, it's just makes sense to hire people to do these sort of tasks. Um, and we've had good results, like trying to do everything yourself. Um, sounds 
you know, you sound like Superman, but at the end of the day, you're just like not going to get it all done and it's just going to be a failed experiment. So, oh, and I should mention, we, we also just hired a virtual assistant and she's She's great. great. Yeah. She's, um, she's actually lives in the Philippines. So it's all just, we, you know, we communicate with, with her over email and, um, we use a lot, we use Google chat, you know, cause we're in our email inboxes a lot and we'll chat with her over there, but we've, we kind of set up a whole system of certain tasks that she could do and she's just working all day and, you know, just constantly chipping away at all these little things. So it helps building yeah, a team is very important. That's awesome. The other thing that's interesting, just hearing you th- talk about it, you're hiring a longtime friend, right? Have you guys ever butted heads? You must have had disagreements, partnership disagreements at some point. It might not have been huge, right? But what was that like? Just kind of, you know, being friends, but also being business partners. Do you, do you have to separate them sometimes when you guys hang out, you know, away from work? Are you kind of intentional about how you separate those two parts of your lives? I don't think we do really. No, like yeah. We don't, we don't <laughs> separate it. We just kind of, it's always, we're talking about it or even while we're working, maybe we'll, we'll talk about something unrelated. And it's just, cause we, you know, we kind of came to, I mean, you can give your opinion of this obviously too, but I think we, we, one of our, our second or third project, we, in that same neighborhood, East Boston, we lived in the same house before we knocked it down. We just lived in there. And I think at that point we came to a very good, like mutual understanding. All right. You know, we've been friends for a long time. We're both people. We have our own like thoughts and opinions about everything, but we have the same goal here. And it made it very easy where it's like, you know, he could criticize me. Yeah. I can criticize him. Not in like a, trying to be better or mean way. It's just like, okay, we just both want to really make this company successful and make a lot of money. And we both understand each other's goals and they're pretty aligned, but we have our own separate stuff too. Um, so I don't know. I'll be honest, we, we really don't butt heads. I mean, we might, I might say, let's try this. And Nick might say, I don't think that's a good idea. I remember last time what happened. And then I'll think like, oh yeah, okay. Logically, objectively, that is what happened. Let's not do that again or vice versa, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. And if we do disagree on something, we usually just like, you know, there'll be times where I think we should do one thing. He thinks another, and then we'll just say, okay, let's just try this. Whatever. If it happens, no one's going to be blamed. It's just, there's just not enough time for that. Really. That's kind of how we look at it. And it's just easier. We're both very like conflict averse people. You know, we sometimes maybe in our personal lives, our families or whatever we can, we, we deal with that. And we don't want to, we don't want that. And we're both on that same page, I think. Yeah. No, I, I think there's times when we're both pissed, but it's like, it's never at each other. <laughs> so that's <laughs> like, that's pretty important. And uh, like Eric said, I, one really important part, not even just work with your friends, but working with anyone is like, don't blame people. Like, even if it is someone's fault, something happened, don't, what, what does that do? And if, and if their performance really is consistently not, you know, working out, then you can part ways and you can talk about like, Hey, I think you shouldn't have done that, but just like, why'd you do that? That sort of energy is just toxic mm-hmm. and it's just not going to work um, with a friend or, or with a stranger in my Completely opinion. agree. Yeah. So you can't imagine the horror stories I've heard from some of these business owners. I mean, it's insane. Some of the, some of the partnership disputes, but it's, it's really awesome that you guys have found kind of that, that flow with each other. Do you think part of that's just a personality thing? Or, or is it more so values? That's well, weird because it's definitely both. But 
well, I would preface this by saying like Eric and I are both like when we were like said, we'd known each other since we were kids. So we kind of like are more aware of like each other's flaws as like someone who would meet each other as adults. Cause like yeah. when you're kids, you know, you, you make a lot of mistakes. Um, so we know each other's like weak points and I'd say both of us kind of grew up with a bad temper, but, um, it like burned us and at a young age. And I almost feel like we've like gone 180 or something. Like we, we both still have like anger and when we get stressed, but it's like, we've learned over the years, like what that does to us. So it's just, we've muted it or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll shout into the wind, but never at other people. You know what I mean? That's you channeled I mean. it almost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Stoicism cool. is kind of a big thing. Nick got me into this, but it's like, you know, we both have this book, the daily stoic. We read it every day is just a passage. It's not year dated. It's just day of the month dated. So you can year after year, you know, eventually start remembering, Oh, last February, I remember reading this. And sometimes it's just four lines mostly Marcus Aurelius, but there's uh, some other famous Stoics in there. And then um, sometimes a whole page, but it all kind of cent- centers around, and you could probably even speak better than I can about this. It all kind of just centers around like being, you know, being logical, comfortable with yourself, not, you know, letting these little things bother you and just kind of living the, the best life you can. And, and all this other stuff is just a waste. Jealousy and all these you know, bad sort of traits. And I think we, we both sort of buy into that definitely, but also just a big thing with us, just efficiency time. You know, it's like that literally waste time. You only have so much time. And as we get older, we're realizing this, you know, you only have so much time on, on, on the earth. So mm. make the best of it so that at the end of your life, you feel very rewarded and you can just do what you want. Yeah. I've got a meditation sitting on my desk at home. So nice. still, uh, still waiting to read it. I haven't read a single page yet. <laughs> That's all right. Pop in. But, uh, that's a good yeah. one. So you guys would recommend the Daily Stoic, though. That's a different book, right? That's isn't that the content creator on YouTube, right? It's uh, I don't know. I'm I've not sure if he's out. on YouTube. Ryan Holiday. He's kind of um, I'm a history nerd, so I kind of like I I came into Stoicism through that angle, but then I was like pleasantly surprised that um, it's kind of blowing up now. So yeah. and I think Ryan Holiday, the the author of the Daily Stoic. I shouldn't say author. It's more like editor, and because he's, he's compiler, getting, yeah, yeah, compiler. Um, he gives his insight a little. Yeah, he he does. He so that book is great because you'll read the ancient text, you know, which is sometimes the language is a little bit obtuse. I feel like the more you read it, the more you start to understand it. Um, mm. It's almost like reading it's a different language in a certain sense. But he'll give his kind of um, thoughts, and so every day we'll have an individual passage. But it's just, you know, Marcus Aurelius says it like you can understand a philosophy, but in order to practice it, you got to keep like restudying it over and over mm-hmm. and over again, because that just kind of like reminds yourself each day, like, all right, you got to do it this way. Don't like fall off track. So this book's a really good way to do that. Wake up, read it in the morning, read the one passage, read Ryan's thoughts about it and, you know, his kind of like modern in modern lingo, what's going on. Sometimes he'll relate it to a, uh, a business figure or like a sports figure or some kind of modern figure that's more relatable and like say how they did this thing. The, mm. That's a great book. So I'd highly recommend that. Are you get, so in the morning you wake up practically, you're waking up, you're reading this passage. Are you guys talking about it? Like, are you, are you it's like a book club sort of thing or is just like you guys kind of keep each other accountable with it or just like daily practice? 
I think when we, when I first uh, recommended it to him, we did that a couple of times, but no, not in a long time. No, just, yeah. just, yeah, it's like a, it's like a solo session. You wake up, orient yourself, you know, to the yeah. world and like a, a proper mindset. Um, it's like a meditation ritual in a certain sense. So Got it. yeah, I'll pick that book up. That sounds awesome. And it, it's quick, you know, it's quick. It's not a, it's not a big endeavor. It's always worth the five, 10 minutes you spend on it. You can access previous episodes of Owner Operated and sign up for my free newsletter where I summarize topics from each episode and send them straight to your inbox at jonahpalone.com in the show notes. That's jonahpalone.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more people find Owner Operated. Back to the episode. So let's circle back to real estate a little bit. This is a question I've had. Multifamily versus retail versus self-storage. You know, there's a lot of different types of commercial real estate and single family homes, residential stuff. What are your thoughts on all these different types? Is it, and here's where I'm coming from with this question, right? From my perspective, it seems like whatever you have experience in, sort of choose that. And if it's something like retail and it's not doing well, you might have to pivot or whatever, right? Or maybe hotels, whatever the situation is. But really, it's more about what your experience is in. Would you agree with that? Or would you say there's certain just ones that are better than others in your opinion? Um well, you know, I like to look at it from a bunch of different angles. So you could look at it, say which is the best inflationary hedge. You know, that's a, think about this, the government, the federal reserve wants 2% inflation every year, right? They sometimes, maybe they don't hit it. Sometimes they're above that, but they're literally aiming for 2% devaluation of your money that's sitting in your bank account every year. So one of the ways that I think is very smart to invest is to look at what's an inflationary hedge. And, um, it's interesting. So that I looked at this study by uh, the Department of Economics and MIT, and they looked at both from the valuation of the asset itself in terms of the property value, basically, and in terms of the income that the property produces. So the you know the rent checks you're you're bringing in. Real estate across the board is a very good inflation hedge. Now, ironically, after a year of COVID and government lockdowns, the strongest inflationary hedge was retail. So if you're looking purely from the perspective of inflationary hedge, you'd think retail's the best. But then we just had a pandemic where the government came out of, you know, came out of nowhere. No one's expecting this could even be a variable and lockdowns are happening and retail suffers. Mm-hmm. And everyone's talking about the death of retail, but we're also talking about inflation at the same time when traditionally, the data shows that retail is a very good inflationary hedge. So the point of telling you that story is basically that I don't know if you look at pure economics, you could say one is better than the other. I'm not huge on office to, to be honest with you. I think that's probably the weakest if I had to choose one, but they're all, they all have, they all have strengths. Um, so you really can't go wrong. I agree that if you have a background in one and most people's background is in residential because everyone lives in a house, or an apartment. So everyone knows something about that and it's somewhat relatable and they kind of understand the basic dynamics of it. That's, that's how most people get into real estate. But like I said, it's, if you're trying to choose how to invest, you can't really go wrong with any of the asset classes. I think the most 
important thing is figuring out how you're going to invest. If you're going to buy it yourself, um, if you're going to partner with an experienced operator, or if you're just going to invest passively, you know, into a syndication. Um, and it, in my opinion, that depends on, you know, your financial picture. If you're making a lot of money already, you can, you can basically retire through passive investments because you just roll in money every year from your W2 or whatever. Um, or even you're a small business owner, maybe you're making good money from your small business and you just roll that money into real estate syndications every year. Most of these companies like our company, we put out multiple investments every year. So you could invest with a couple different syndicators, a couple different real estate companies, depending on how much money you're bringing in through your salary or through your business. Um, and you can literally retire early. I actually wrote a free ebook about that. It's at winterspringcapital.com slash retire dash early. But that's the concept of it is, hey, if you're making money already, lots of people come into this like, all right, I'm going to buy an apartment. All right, I'm going to buy a duplex. And people don't really know about this option. Um, yeah. So it's like, honestly, I, I'd like people to invest with us, but also I just kind of want to get the word out there. Um, and the reason why it's not that well known is the 506 C, which allows you to advertise for real estate syndications that only became a thing in 2012. So before that, like, I, I like to say it's like a good old boys club yeah. of like people in the know that knew the syndicators and you're not allowed to advertise it. So it's just, it's kind of an unknown thing. People know about REITs but REITs are different. You're investing into a company that owns real estate. Whereas with a syndication, you're directly owning real estate. You're getting tax benefits like depreciation. Um, so it's, I prefer a syndication. I think you should diversify into both, you know, if you're looking to really play it safe and hedge your bets, but it's a great option for a lot of people. So if you're trying to do it yourself, like you said, go with your experience, but you're not you're not going to go wrong if you buy at the right price with any of the asset classes. And if you're already making good money, you should strongly consider investing um, passively. We're even looking at now, you mentioned self-storage. Yeah. We haven't invested yet in self-storage, but that is another interesting, you know, asset class we're looking at. We're very intrigued by, we think the numbers can really make sense. And a lot of people we're seeing are starting to get into that. Yeah. We're really seeing a, a boom, I think, starting with, with, uh, in that space. Yeah. And it's interesting because I've, I've got a buddy who just took a job um, out of Carolina at a self-storage company in New York. And he just said, man, the asset makes too much sense. Like it, it's, and for me, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's basically a business, right? That's what I like so much about it is, you know, that's why I think maybe in the future I'd be involved in some way with it because you're running a business, but you're also running real estate and it's relatively passive compared to a lot of the businesses that, that we deal with at Midstreet. You know what I mean? So it's, fa it's always fascinating with me. And, and even personally, right? Like I'm moving to Raleigh and I've decided I'm going to get a small self-storage unit on like a long-term basis because there's just a lot of things that I want to keep long-term that I have like books, right? Books that I won't read for probably a year. I have a lot of books. So why clutter my space with that? You know, so there's a lot of that going on as well, which is just kind of the second home for your things. And, you know, it's a $30 a month charge. Uh, the cost for that per square foot in my apartment 
would be like way more, you know what I'm saying? For that extra space. So it just makes a lot of sense for me personally, as well as obviously it's a good investment. That's a good point because you, you, you mentioned for you specifically in that scenario, and we're seeing kind of just on a Mac, more macro economic level as home prices go up and up and up, there's more renters. Um, And that's, you know, when you're renting, typically you're probably renting something that's smaller than if you owned your own home. Not always, but that's Mm -hmm. probably on average. So it really, we're we're seeing that as a a big component to increasing the demand for storage. Oh yeah. I mean, if you're in a city, you don't have like, I'm going into a 950 square foot apartment, right? So it's like, I don't have that square footage in general, but even if I yep. wanted to get something a little bit bigger, it would cost me way more than $30 a month. So that's right. You know, I don't have to have it right next to me. It makes a lot of sense. So going back, it, this is a question I guess I have just related to that passive sort of the, the, you know, I guess that you would call it passive investing with real estate. Right. So what I know about real estate, one of the reasons I'm so interested in it personally is there's so many different benefits that you get aside from just cash flow and even aside from just appreciation, right? So when you buy a house, you say you put 25% down and the bank puts the 75% in for you, for example, if the house appreciates, you get all the appreciation of the full amount of the house, not just your 25%, right? And there's a ton of different similar benefits that you get that are just like pretty ridiculous when you when you actually chart them out, right? The tax benefits, the things that you can write off, just the sheer concept of you buy something, someone else rents it, and it automatically gets paid for over time. Obviously, it's not that easy, right? You know, evictions can happen, whatever, but that concept is just so smart to me. So as a passive investor, you mentioned things like depreciation and, and other benefits. Can you just like walk through how does that even work? So like, say I, so I, you know, I, I say, Hey guys, I want to invest my money with you. I'm an accredited investor. Here's a hundred thousand dollars. Here's $200,000. How do I get those benefits? Like practically what, what happens? Do I get a K one at the end of the year and walk me through that if you can? Yeah. So you're functionally on a, a fractional owner of that property or properties. Um, sometimes it, you, you could even have a fund, but let's, let's not get it too complicated here. Um, so just say we're talking about an individual property, the amount that you put in will correspond to your percent ownership. You'll get shares in the property. You'll get K ones annually, as you said, you'll get your cash flow, um, usually quarterly or monthly, depending on how it's set up. Um, and you'll get your depreciation through your K one, as you said. And like you mentioned, if the property appreciates, when you go to sell it or refinance it again, that's all proportional um, to the amount you own. So you'll have a, basically an agreement um, that kind of outlines how people are compensated. And Eric could kind of go into that since I'm like hogging the mic here. No, that's all right. I mean, you'll, you'll have an agreement as Nick said upfront and you know, there's, I don't want to say there's like an industry standard or anything, but you know, you usually you see kind of a similar thing where maybe there's a couple types of investors like class A or B, maybe there's a preferred rate of return. Um, so, and, and with these syndications, a lot of times you may not hit some of those numbers in the first year or two as you're working on the value add strategy that you're going to implement, whether it's renovations or managerial efficiencies that um, you're going to bring to the table. Um, So you kind of look at it as, you know, what's the IRR of this investment over the lifetime? It includes the initial cash flows that might be less than you expect and includes the sale at the end if you're going to sell it. 
Uh, you can refinance too, of course. Um, so that's all spelled out at the beginning. Everyone knows. And as Nick said, you get a proportional owner. So, I mean, you know, this isn't probably a syndication example, but just say, you know, you have a, a million dollar property, uh, you put in a hundred grand at 10%, right? So then whatever that total property can depreciate based on the laws and based on its assessed value and everything, you'll receive 10% of that, essentially. That's the simple way to look at it. Got if it. you had 200,000 in there, it'd be 20%. Yeah. And the preferred rate of return for people who are not familiar is really a risk reduction instrument for the investors because it basically says you're preferred to get paid this out of any income and cash flows before anyone else is getting any money. So we, as the, the sponsor of the deal or any other sponsors in a syndication, we are not paid until you're hit that preferred rate of return. Now, say you had a preferred rate of return of 8%, and in year one, you only were able to pay out 7%. Well, that stacks on to year two. Now you got to pay them 9% in year two. So that is really a protectionary um, form for the investors that, that makes it a lot. It's just kind of the nature of the industry where people – they want to invest passively with minimal risk. And these are kind of the structures that have developed over time um, that kind of lets everyone win, really. And it also there's, you know, a lot of people will say, well, look, you know, the sponsor. So say there's a property that requires five million dollars in equity. Nick talking about earlier, kind of like a down payment, you might think of it as yeah. um, typically you'll see in a syndication like a sponsor us, you know, the GP maybe puts in five to 10% of that as their own capital. Um, so in this scenario, you'd be talking, you know, 250 to $500,000. Um, maybe the, the, so the LP investors would make up the rest of that. So there, there's kind of a, there might be a thought that, okay, well, why are they getting this percentage? So you have to do splits like that, that incentivize people to join in and say, okay, I'm getting paid before them as an LP investor. Um, maybe they put in the same amount of money as us individually. Maybe one group writes the entire check, the rest of that four and a half million to get to that five, something like that. Um, so as Nick said, if you don't hit that, whatever you tell them, if there is a preferred return, if you don't hit it, you might not hit it till you sell the property, none of the years. So what you have to do at that point is make sure that they averaged out to that based on what they get at the end. And then it might also mean the sponsors is us. We don't get any of the cash flow for multiple years. It might work out that way too. And Eric's just talking about disaster scenario, right, but right. it's when you want to describe, you know, the fact that you've been de-risked, that's what you talk about is mm -hmm. a worst case scenario. So in the worst case scenario, by the nature of the preferred return, those people are still promised that amount. Good. Yeah, that, yeah. that makes sense. And, and Eric also mentioned um, IRR for anybody who's listening. It's just internal rate of return. So just how you think about right developing versus acquiring properties that already exist at this stage, how does that balance look for you guys in terms of also just practically like where you place your energy, right? Like as you grow the company, are you going to do more on the acquisition side and less on the development? Do you have plans for kind of how that's going to progress over time? We kind of have a plan um, within the next two years to acquire a lot of properties. And ultimately, we want to circle back to pretty much just building large apartments ourselves and then holding them. But 
as we're kind of on this growth path right now, we're in the build up our assets phase. Um, mm-hmm. So we're not only we're insulated financially, we're on very strong footing, but also we have that background. We've built a lot of properties. Hey, we have all these assets. We're going to let's, let's uh, build, you know, a 300 unit apartment, a 200 unit apartment building. Um, so that's kind of our plan for the near future, but we're still, you know, we've got upcoming development projects projected gross sales of about 40 million right now. So still uh, very focused on the development as well in the near future. That's awesome. And as you guys were, were getting started and, and through now, talk about a little bit about the lending relationship side of things, because that's a whole other side of the business we really didn't touch on too much. But so when you were doing that first development, right, how did you get the financing? Did you have kind of existing relationships from your prior jobs or, or did you start calling banks and you know, how did that work? Yeah. So one of the things that I would recommend to people when they're first getting started with real estate investing, whether it's doing flips, whether it's doing development, um, whether it's just buying a rental property, call local banks first, because, you know, if you know that your credit and your, you know, your net worth is all stellar, you know, maybe you've already been working for years. That wasn't necessarily our situation. You know, I was 25 at the time and I had saved up a good amount of money. Um, by my standards anyways, and Eric had as well. So we were on like pretty firm footing for our age and our background. Um, So we were able to secure financing from a local bank, but that's not always possible. You know, maybe if you have some hair on your credit score or some small issue and you're first starting out, people are going to look at you more skeptically, but you can get um, private money lenders is a very viable option. Um, as well that frankly, it seems like nowadays the banks are a little bit more, we were in a weird like limbo period and, you know, the, the great recession had happened, but it was 2015. I don't know. The banks were a little bit more like lenient interest rates are a little bit higher than they are now, obviously. Um, so they, they lended to us, but it seems like most people are starting out now have to go the private money route, which is fine. You know, they'll charge a couple more points than a conventional lender. Um, but you just got to underwrite it that way. And the numbers have to work. Um, and lots of people do that. It's, we know a lot of private lenders actually it's worth scaling up now to the next level. We're doing a $25 million development. We fought, we're finally probably going to work with a private lender, um, because we couldn't qualify conventionally for that large of a development based on our net worth. You'll have Mm. these net worth covenants that you have to have the same net worth as the size of the development. And we've kind of been able to dodge around that by doing a couple smaller developments at once, but now we're scaling up to doing larger individual ones. And so we have to work with private lenders and there's private lenders, even in this large space when you're doing, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 plus million dollar development. So it's a great option. um, If that's the way you have to go. And when you were getting into it, did you have to deal with debt to income ratios or was it treated as an investment from the beginning? Because that's something that I'm probably going to run into when I buy the next house, my first house. We did. I mean, we did. Um, That is that the underwriting process for banks obviously is very intense. Um, 
and sort of something, you know, we ran into at the beginning, we were able to pull it off in that first one. And then we had a bit of a track record, went to the same bank. They saw it worked out. Um, now we have a few projects with that bank, but yeah, it's like, they'll look at it as an investment more so if it's say a pre-existing rental property that you're not really doing anything with. Um, they say, okay, the property on its own can meet this DCR the day or DSCR debt service coverage ratio. Um, usually you look at a bank will want like a 1.2, 1.25. So that means whatever your net operating income after all expenses meets that. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the development jobs, it is a little trickier where it's speculative sort of you, they have to believe in the project. So you have to work with them on comps in the area. So they'll, they'll run your credit. They'll use your, your income. Um, but then, you know, you pull it off a multi-million dollar construction loan, everything goes great. You don't really get any credit for that in terms of on your report. So if it's mm-hmm. the same bank, they know. Um, but if you go to another bank, it's just based on you showing them this experience. They don't see, Oh, look, you know, they paid off a $3 million construction loan. Yeah. And so it's kind of a weird situation, but yes, they definitely will use that to start at least in our experience. Well, cause my buddy, my buddy, uh, last podcast I did made a good point because <clears throat> I was talking about buying multiple single family homes to start. And he was, he reached out to me and, and basically said, just, you know, forewarning debt to income ratios are a real thing. You know, if you, if you have to deal with that, it's, it's, it can really halt you if you're not, situating it properly. I've heard from other folks that after a certain point, the, the banks will kind of look at you more as an investor and treat them, like you just said, as kind of debt to, debt service coverage ratio, looking at the property itself instead of also you. I'm always just curious to, to figure that, more of that out. Well, cool. So this has been awesome, guys. I really appreciate your time. I got um, one more question and then and we can we can uh, guide people to your website. I, I want to talk a little bit more about this Lucky Puppy Society because I think that's awesome. Um, where would I go just resources wise is, are there books, are there courses that you'd recommend? You know, is it mostly an experiential thing, partnering and finding the right person? How do you get into this world? Right. I've heard a lot of different books mentioned before. What do you, what would you guys say? The nonprofit world, you mean? I'm sorry. Yeah. To make that more clear, just the real estate world, like, you know, the, the real estate game development and acquisitions. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I, I think if you want to get into this world, it's a combination of uh, doing your homework and then just kind of diving in. Um, so go to our website, winterspringcapital.com. I've written a ton of articles. I've written multiple investor guides. You want to do what we do with the condominium development? I wrote a ebook about it. You want to be a passive investor and just sit on the sidelines? I wrote an ebook about that. You want to invest with your self-directed IRA. I wrote a small guide on that. So, um, do your homework, get educated, but then don't have analysis paralysis either. Um, once you've gotten enough knowledge to get going, get into it and you'll learn way faster once you're in it. Just don't be reckless. Basically. Like I, I would say, don't spend too much time on the studying phase, but read a couple eBooks, read some articles, listen to some podcasts, and then get moving on it. Uh, it's, it's really that simple. And every, every real estate market, you can make money in any real estate market. Um, you can invest in other real estate markets with other groups, lots of different options. You can do it yourself. You can partner with people, but, uh, yeah, I just do your homework. You'll, you'll absorb it into yourself the more you read. And it's really, it's not, there's a lot of different variables in real estate investing, but once you understand each variable, it's not that complicated. 
like anyone can understand it. That's right. Yeah. You can, a big thing for us, we had to intentionally realize this, this analysis paralysis mode that Nick talked about. We'd be reading all this stuff and it's really good to read guides and especially something like the stuff Nick wrote, because it gives you like a very straightforward um, approach to the different topics we've kind of been talking about. Um, but you, at some point you do have to say, okay, I built up enough knowledge here. You know, I, you have to have confidence that you're smarter than other people who have done this and you just kind of have to jump in. And one thing, you know, for people who are really early on with it and, and just want to figure out how to get their feet wet, um, you can do sort of like house hacking something. I, I own a two family and we bought that lived in, you know, one unit, my wife and I, and we rent it, we rented out the other unit. Um, and that kind of is a, a good foray into it. And then if you decide, okay, I'm going to move on from there, you now have, you know, a performing asset, which then can go towards your income. If you want to buy your own, you know, larger house or even another multifamily before you know it, you're, you know, and we, you, you, you own several units and several doors, however you want to put it. And we almost kind of did that with some of our projects too, before we demolished the old house to build a new one, mm. we'd live in them for a bit. Cause you know, you're paying a mortgage on it yeah, and we were well, still right? young at that point, you know, so fine jumping around. Lots that's, of moving that's an expenses. easy kind of way to get that was, uh, <laughs> those. Those were the bachelor <laughs> days. Uh, <laughs> right. Married with kids now, so it doesn't work anymore, but yeah. That's awesome, guys. Well, I really appreciate your time. This has been super value-packed. I think the listeners are really going to like this one. It's a little bit different than what we've done in the past with this kind of the traditional small business route. I like the fact that we focus on real estate here. So where could people... So you've mentioned passive income through real estate for small business owners. That was a book that you wrote. Nick, where could people find that book again? And then where could people invest with you guys? And then um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the nonprofit you guys have. Yeah, so go. You can just go to winterspringcapital.com/small-business. And again, we we own a small business. My parents own a small business. I really understand the world of being a small business owner, and I kind of feel like like my parents never invested. They just invested in their own business, which I imagine is a lot of small business owners. But you could literally kind of protect yourself. You just parcel away some of your profit every year. And then suddenly you're making passively some percent of what you're making through all this like active labor. So I think it's a good, good, good route for a lot of people. Check it out. Winterspringcapital.com slash small dash business. Um, Eric and I share an Instagram account, just a company Instagram account at Winterspring Capital. Uh, we're both on LinkedIn and just check out the the website in general, winterspringcapital.com. I got a ton of articles on there as well. And I'll link all of that in the show notes for everyone to check out too. And to add to Nick's point about the small business, it's uh, I think Warren Buffett quote, I can't remember it exact, but essentially like, you know, if you're not, if your money isn't making money while you sleep, you know, you're doing something wrong. And that's kind of even though we're actively, you know, we build something, we sell it all out. We don't even own some of the units anymore for the development side. Yeah. We still have that approach where you, we keep parceling away to other things. That's awesome. That should be the end goal. That's Make awesome. your money work for you. Absolutely. And then Nick, where can everybody find um, the Lucky Puppy Society? Yeah, it's at luckypuppysociety.org. Um, so we, so there's two things you could do there. We sell shirts and dog toys and all the profits go to the surgery fund. And if you know a dog in need, there's also a form there that you can fill out and give us their information. We'll get in contact with them. That's awesome, guys. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it again. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having us Take on. Take it easy, Jonah. Thanks, Thanks. guys.
This episode of Owner Operated is sponsored by OnTops Roofing, a family-owned and operated business servicing the Triangle area of North Carolina since 1991. With a long-standing commitment to quality work and customer service, OnTops has grown to be recognized as one of the most respected roofing contractors in the Triangle. They offer roofing work, window replacements, siding replacements, and gutter installation services. Check them out at ontopsroofing.com. That's on tops roofing.com. Thank you for listening to Owner Operated, conversations with small business millionaires. Be sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter at jonapalone.com, where I share the takeaways from each episode and share any resources or tips I find valuable. And if you like the episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It really does help the show grow and send it to a friend that you think would benefit from it. Thanks so much.